actually think you're too old to be thinking even about perimenopause and menopause. Most women in their 40s will be perimenopausal. I still get scared and I'm not quite sure why I'm feeling scared. Women are being denied evidence-based treatment for no reason. How can women support themselves? I felt really cross that I was cheated, that no one had told me before, because it is obvious. I'm your host, Sarah Ann Macklin, and I'm on a mission to uncover the maze of health myths around nutrition and well-being and guide you through my seven pillars of health. Join me on a journey of discovery and connection and put up a pew for a front row seat to the most exclusive health conversation of our time. Welcome to Live Well, Be Well. As women, our hormones are constantly changing. From the moment our period starts, we experience symptoms such as PMS and PMDD. But like most women, we just sit back and deal with it. This can lead to many severe health problems being undiagnosed and also the reason why so many women experience such severe menopausal symptoms. It's not something that I ever thought that I would need to think about now or even how my lifestyle choices would affect this later stage in my life. And I wonder if you have. Joining me today is Dr. Louise Newson, a GP, a world leading expert in menopause and also an author of the new book, A Definitive Guide to Perimenopause and Menopause. If like me, you always thought this conversation should only be listened to when you're 50, then be prepared to be shocked. Welcome to Live Well, Be Well. Oh, thank you. And thanks for inviting me. I am so happy to have you here for a multitude of reasons, actually. So you are a British GP, but you're also a menopause specialist. Mm. And we haven't touched upon this on the show yet, but I'm going to try and touch upon it in three different ways. I really want to talk about menopause. I really want to talk about perimenopause. And then I also want to talk about somebody who is in their 30s, how I should be thinking Mm. about these life changes that are kind of ahead of me and and before Mm. me, rather than getting to it and having a panic. So you said something on quite a few podcasts that I I listened to and it it really stood out to me. And you said, there's nine months when a woman's pregnant and they have so much amazing, by the way, Mm. attention and care during that nine months, which you can all all agree is what we hope for. But then after that stage in life, after that person's had a baby and they've moved on and they're maybe going into their perimenopause, they're kind of forgotten about there's not as much care and attention and I think so many women start to feel really isolated and really lost and incredibly lonely during this Mm. phase in life because also there's a lot of shame and stigma attached to it for a woman in her 30s her mid-30s I've become really increasingly aware actually of the menopause Mm. from works like yourself and I really wanted to start like why is it so important that for someone like me should start thinking about this because I'm very much about, and so is this show, about prevention. Absolutely, and it's great that you're bringing it up, but this is going to sound really awful. So don't, don't, <laughs> don't, don't start the podcast, I know, something awful. I know, by insulting you, it might be a very short <laughs> podcast. But I actually think you're too old to be thinking even about perimenopause and menopause. And that's for, for a couple Love of reasons. This, yeah. Because it really frustrates me. If you Google menopause, okay, mm-hmm. and I don't know if you've ever done it, it's always white usually grey-haired women they've usually got a fan or they've got a glass of water or they've got their head in their hands Mm. usually at work now 
you know, I'm a lot older than you, but I haven't got grey hair. I've mm-hmm. never had a hot flush. Mm-hmm. I've never sat at work with my head in my hands. Mm-hmm. So I don't identify with those people. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of talk about midlife with yeah. menopause. Well, for a start, I have no idea what my life expectancy is going to be. Mm-hmm. You know, neither do you, neither does my 12-year-old. Mm. Mm. So actually, how do you define midlife? Mm. But then it's usually oh, it's 40s and 50s. But then we have to be thinking about hormones rather than menopause, if you see Mm. what I mean. So I'm trying to sort of even drop the term menopause specialist and think more about a hormone specialist. But I'm not an endocrinologist. We've got hundreds, probably thousands of hormones in our body. Mm -hmm. All I'm interested in is three hormones. (laughs) It's really basic, actually. So we can talk at length. Let's go to the three. So it's estrogen, progesterone and testosterone. Mm -hmm. That's all it is. Mm -hmm. But people then say, well, they're sex hormones. They're not about sex, actually, and Mm. they're not even about gender because Mm. men have estrogen, Mm -hmm. progesterone, testosterone. They're the forgotten hormones, really. Mm. And so when we think about the hormones, then we have to think about, well, my 12-year-old started her periods this year. She won't mind me telling (laughs) everyone. But so she's got hormones in her body too. She's going to become more aware of her hormones. Mm. So it's an awareness of the hormones from really early because we're Mm. all different. We're all individualised. And I know it's not just about preventative medicine that you're interested in. It's about individualisation. Totally. And that's really crucially important. And we respond to different things in different ways. Mm -hmm. But we also respond to these three hormones in different ways as well. Mm. Um, So as soon as we understand that mm. that makes a huge difference mm. because a lot of women in their mid-30s will have had pregnancies before mm-hmm. all nearly all women will have had periods by the time they're in their 30s mm. um, so they'll be aware of some hormonal changes mm-hmm. and that's where it's really important because if you think about what the menopause definition is mm-hmm. it really annoys me and I can <laughs> explain why but in a, if you look it up in a textbook or google it it's a year since the last period mm-hmm. so you have to wait a year before you can have this diagnosis which as a doctor what do I do say to a woman oh just come back in another three weeks because it's been 11 months and one week since your last period mm-hmm. you're not menopausal and it's only a day mm. but actually lots of women don't have periods because they have had a hysterectomy they use a marina coil mm-hmm. increasingly people are having contraception so they're not having And actually, I have a bit of an issue being defined by my periods as a woman. Mm -hmm. And then a lot of people say, well, it's due to fertility problems or loss of fertility as the menopause, which, again, I don't find that's very helpful to be defined as Mm -hmm. are you a fertile woman or not? not. It's none of anyone's business whether Mm -hmm. you're fertile or not. But also for some cultures, you don't want to be admitting you're not fertile. But also young women who have an earlier menopause can still be fertile. So Mm -hmm. that's not right either. Yeah. And so they sort of think that they can't have children and there are some people that can even when they've got had an earlier menopause Mm. so it's just a hormonal loss really it's a deficiency of hormones but before that time we have this perimenopause Mm -hmm. and peri means around the time of so our hormones start to decline but they fluctuate Mm. but it's an extension of what happens when we're younger you know those graphs that Mm -hmm. you have where you see you have a spike of your hormones when you ovulate Mm -hmm. so our estrogen and progesterone go quite high up and then the second half of the cycle they drop and Mm. by the time we have our periods they're pretty non-existent Mm. so lots of people have that 
couple of days before their periods where they feel tired, they feel irritable, mm. they might have muscle and joint aches, they might have sugar cravings. Well, mood. they would say a mood. Mine's mood. That's exactly the same as the perimenopause and menopause. It's just called something different, but it's a hormonal change. Mm. And the sooner we realise that, the sooner then we can be clued into our body and think, well, we've got these hormonal changes. We don't have to wait until a year past our last period, or we don't have to wait till we're having real chaos in the perimenopause. Mm -hmm. We need to be aware because then we can help people to feel better. And can I make one thought suggestion? I'm a bit terrified to ask this, <laughs> probably from my own fear. <laughs> I feel like all my fears come out on the show. Um, just because you gave me a bit of a brainwave. So I, I suffer with really bad PMS. Mm. So I get it about five days before my mm. period. Sometimes longer, sometimes a week. And I'm really low in my mood. Mm. I have the worst stomach cramps, but I also just feel very sick and mm -hmm. have very bad GI symptoms. And for most of my school life, I couldn't go to school when my when my mm. period was was due. So it's really disrupted my life. And I went on the pill, which is another thing we'll, we'll talk about for, for many years because I just didn't mm. know what else mm. to do. So the best thing for me was to go on the mini pill, stop my periods altogether, and then I could model, do my career, and actually just live my life. Yeah. And then, you know, coming 30, realizing I've not really had Yes. A normal menstrual cycle for me started to feel very natural mm. when I made the decision to mm. come off it. So now I'm back in this kind of flux of mm. they're everywhere. So I know that so many of my friends and my siblings have suffered with PMS. Mm. Is there a link just from how you're describing the menstrual cycle and the menopause and mm. perimenopause? If you're more likely to have more severe PMS symptoms mm. when those hormones drop, mm. because some people I know just don't have any, yeah. are you more likely to suffer? when you start heading into your You know the answer, don't you? <sighs> That's why I'm scared to ask the question. <laughs> well, but it's really it interesting. Yes. yes, And why? Is. On this show, you'll hear me talk a lot about the gut microbiome. So I'm sorry if I sound like a broken record, but it is incredibly important for so many elements of our overall health. As a woman in her 30s, I'm becoming increasingly aware of how important our gut health is for our overall hormonal health. Being a woman is never easy, but there is so much that we can do to empower our health and feel comfortable in our bodies. The health of our gut microbiome can impact our serotonin production and our sleep quality. And these are two key areas of our mental well-being. And estrogen plays a massive role in the metabolism of our sugar and insulin sensitivity, which keep your gut microbiome regulated as well as your weight. And as estrogen levels start to fluctuate, our women can be left feeling anxious, low in energy, and gaining weight with no logical explanation. But our sex hormones start to decline in our mid to late 30s, and this can cause disruption to our gut health. So investing in your gut health could be the leading preventative factor to help support you through your perimenopause and menopause symptoms. I've got something very exciting for you to try. It is the first probiotic formulated for women going through perimenopause, menopause, and beyond to help tackle the symptoms of the decline in sex hormones and to support overall health and well-being. I'm talking about the Better Gut Daily Probiotic Supplement from Better Menopause. This was developed by a nutritional therapist who was experiencing perimenopause symptoms herself. Our gut health is a central node of our well-being, and women going through this difficult stage in life sometimes need all the support and help that they can get. So if you feel that you've resonated with anything I've said, 
all you feel that your gut health needs that extra TLC, try the Better Gut Probiotic Supplement for three months to see if it helps support your digestion or any of these perimenopause or menopause symptoms that I've just spoken about. So head to bettermenopause.com and use our exclusive code BEWELL to get 25% off your first order. It's all about this sort of, people sometimes term it as reproductive depression um, because it's usually the mental health issues yeah. that are worse, but obviously GI symptoms, mm -hmm. other symptoms can occur as well. Now, some people are just more sensitive to hormones. And if you think about these graphs that I was discussing just for normal sort of regular periods, if you mm -hmm. like, then if you think also when people are pregnant, you have very high levels of hormones and literally overnight when the baby's born, they drop. And so mm. people who have PMS are more likely to have postnatal depression. And then when they're perimenopausal, are far more likely to have these symptoms as well. So you're getting a flavour, <laughs> lucky Gosh. you, for what it's <laughs> what it was going to be like for you as an individual. Yeah. And it's often just, uh, uh, you see, every single cell in our body responds to these three hormones. Mm -hmm. And they, um, they're really important for biological processes that go mm. on in our cells all the time. They're biologically active. That's, that's why we're made with these hormones. Mm. They're important. And actually, it's very interesting because they're not just produced from our ovaries they're also produced from our brains as well mm -hmm. so we've gone on and on and on for years about the period regulation the fertility but actually if we have a, a brain injury or a stroke one of the first things our brain does is produce progesterone and estrogen to repair our brain because they're very anti-inflammatory mm. it's not all coming from our ovaries mm. so some people will have this variation and so that's why it's so important to know. And it's it's awful, actually, when I was sort of doing more menopause work, I wanted to sit in other people's clinics because you learn more about, you know, mm. how, how to actually manage patients. You can read all the papers you like, but it's not the same as practicing. Totally. So I sat in um, a clinic of a, a very well-known specialist in London. This was about mm, eight or nine years ago. Mm. And one of the patients that came in was someone he'd known for a few years and she was really young and I thought, well, maybe she's got an early, had an early menopause, but she had really bad PMS. She actually had PMDD, which is just the more severe mm -hmm. premenstrual dysphoric disorder. Mm. Um, and uh, and she was on some gel and some she had some t testosterone and some progesterone as well. And, and after she went, I said, oh... I've, I've never done that. In, in general practice, we're just told to give these people antidepressants or look at their B12 or look at their you know, other, other um, vitamins and diet. And he said, well, Louise, he said, I'm just topping up. I'm just giving, giving back physiology. That's all I'm doing. I'm replacing what's missing. Mm. He said, often with these people, all you do is just give some hormones for those few days. So for you, the rest of your cycle, probably your hormones are fine. It's yeah. just those few days. So all we tend to do is just give hormones on those few days to top up and it can be transformational. But the sad thing is I see a lot of women in my clinic who've got a history of that and it's gone from two days to three days to four days to a week before their periods. Then they've become perimenopausal, their, whole, their, um, their cycles have changed, their periods have become heavier or lighter or more further apart or closer together. And then I've given them hormones for their perimenopause then they come out and say, oh, my goodness, I wish I'd done this 30 years ago. Like, why didn't anyone tell me? And it's so obvious. But sometimes in life and certainly in medicine, it's the obvious things that go missing because we layer on with with treatments and drugs. And then we do what other people have taught us. And often in medicine, we're all so busy mm. that you learn by your peers. You don't have time to just sit back and look at the obvious. Mm -hmm. So as soon as this professor told me, I was like, oh, I felt really cross that I was cheated, that no one had told me before 
you know, because it is obvious, mm. but you just don't think about it. It's interesting how you talk about it as like a hormone deficiency and you mm. basically just top it up because as a nutritionist, mm. if mm. I see somebody who's got a B12 yeah. deficiency yeah. or an iron deficiency... It's no different, is it? I top them up. Yeah, yeah. And it's even just given, you know, hopefully my listeners, but even just myself, that mm. kind of personal awareness yes. of... It's interesting how we just feel that we have to suffer. Yes, and I, it's interesting because I was saying to my mother recently, who's not medical, something about PMS, because we're seeing more and more people in the clinic who've got PMS and PMDD, and, and the stories are harrowing. And I said to my mother, she said, yeah, but it's only a few days a month. That's what women suffer with. And I said, but mother, I said, even if it's only three days a month, there's 12 months a year. So that's equivalent to roughly a month a year that people are not going to school, not functioning well at work. Um, you know, when I'm thinking about people who play sport, they're mm. going to be missing games. Going mm-hmm. to, and actually just feeling rubbish. Yeah. And actually as a doctor, one of the reasons I went into medicine was to help people feel better. Mm-hmm. So actually giving natural hormone, which is a very low dose, it's a lot lower than the contraceptive pill to top up and people feel better, is, is that wrong? Mm. Of course it's not. Mm. Um, but also a lot of people will take the contraceptive pill for PMS and we've got more natural types of, of um, contraceptive pill, often because they're slightly more expensive, they can't be prescribed on the NHS. Mm-hmm. Um, but they can make quite a difference. So there are options, but if anyone's got PMS or PMDD, number one is thinking about the hormones. Mm. And it might not be estrogen, it might be progesterone or, or testosterone, it can be a combination. But absolutely, it's really important. Just even thinking about the menopause, because I know we're going to get onto that and the perimenopause and, and everything that comes with it. And the outreach I've had on social media about this episode has like completely blown my mind just from my audience mm. who are listening. I mean, they are so eager to learn about their Great. hormones from you. So I really want to get onto that. And before I do, though, you mentioned a stat to me. And I've also got it written down because it's in your fantastic new book. Because I am somebody in my 30s and also because somebody in my family went through a very Mm. early menopause it really kind of it really struck me Mm. actually and I think there's this odd space for somebody in their kind of mid-30s who worries about fertility and then worries about menopause and it's a kind of a bit of a confusing age can you give me some stats around early menopause and what that looks like and so it's more common than we realize so so if you think not saying that anyone's average but the average age of the menopause in the uk is thought to be 51 Mm -hmm. but the perimenopause can last 10 years or so before so by definition most women in their 40s will be perimenopausal but we know and i was always taught one in a hundred women under the age of 40 have an early menopause but more recent figures have said three percent so that's about one in 30 women have an earlier menopause so we call it poi premature ovarian insufficiency um it used to be called primary ovarian failure pof which is horrible because there's nothing failing about these women i know but that's i don't know if a woman termed that no of course not of course not (laughs) so but it but there are different causes for it. So for, mm. for a lot of women, it's idiopathic, which means we haven't got a clue what's caused it, actually. Like a lot of things, mm. they just happen. It's bad luck, really. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It can run in families, so it can be genetic. Um, and so some people find if they've got uh, female relatives who have had an earlier menopause, they more like, doesn't mean they will, but mm. it's just that tendency, really. Um, some people, there are some quite unusual, quite rare genetic conditions that can cause um, the ovaries to fail earlier. Some people obviously have their ovaries removed, so they might have endometriosis or cysts or Mm -hmm. some other condition that means their ovaries are removed. Mm -hmm. I know it sounds really obvious, but once your ovaries are removed, you're menopausal from that day, even if you've still got your womb. 
So that's important. Some people have their womb removed and their ovaries preserved, but the ovaries are more likely to fail earlier. So that's important to know that even if you've got your ovaries but you've had a hysterectomy, you might mm. have an earlier menopause. And then there are certain treatments. So a lot of cancer treatments, for example, the chemotherapy, um, when it's given through the through the um, the veins throughout the body, it will stop fastly dividing cells, which also happen in the ovary. So they can it's often temporarily cause a menopause mm. and also radiotherapy. So I've got quite a few patients who've had pelvic cancers, for, for example, cervical cancer, and mm. they've had radiotherapy and chemotherapy so their whole pelvic organs have either mm. been removed or they've been damaged by radiotherapy mm-hmm. um, and that can cause an earlier menopause as well but so many people are focusing on especially after cancer they think those symptoms that they're getting are side effects to the chemotherapy and it's and actually it's menopausal symptoms well one in 30 is huge it's huge and there are certain groups of people where it's more common so we've done a lot of work with women living with hiv for example so women with living with hiv we know are more likely to have an earlier menopause mm-hmm. more likely to have more severe symptoms Mm-hmm. less likely to get treatment. Um, also, women who are subject to domestic abuse, both physical and sexual, mm-hmm. are more likely to have an earlier menopause, more likely to have severe symptoms, actually, oh and less gosh. likely to be recognised. Drug abusers, because the body, if you think any insult to our bodies our body's clever it doesn't Mm. want us to get pregnant and Mm -hmm. add more burden Mm -hmm. so if it's a physical stress and emotional stress anything else if people have extreme weight losses if they um, um, have an eating disorder if they're abusing their body with drugs or alcohol ovaries are going to switch off Mm -hmm. and then that it causes the menopause, of course. Um, and then some drugs can. So some types of antidepressants, some types of antipsychotics can also cause a chemical menopause, if you like. But a lot of people aren't thinking that, especially if someone's, for example, um, subject to abuse and they're stressed and they've got low self-esteem, reduced self-worth, they're not sleeping well, they're anxious. No one's going to be asking them about their periods or could it be related to their hormones? And that person might not think about it. So you can see how it's ignored. And some studies have shown it takes seven years for someone with an early menopause to be diagnosed and more than seven consultations. Oh, wow. Which is just awful. But also, how? I mean, I think everyone's probably gone to their doctor and felt that they have a frustration or they've left thinking they're a little bit mad mm. um, because, you know, certain signs and symptoms have gone unrecognised. So for anyone, whether it's early menopause or the perimenopause, like what are the signs and symptoms to kind of look out for? Because yeah. it's interesting. You mentioned such a, a large amount of different lifestyle aspects, which already brings you back to the first question of prevention is so important, yes, right? Absolutely. That's kind of how we started yeah. it. But say people are going to go into an early menopause or they're in their perimenopause, they're in their mid-40s. Mm. What are the signs and symptoms yeah. that they can start to look out you know, for? It's, and it's so difficult because there are so many mm. symptoms. You know, as long as you listen, every day when I see patients, I'm learning more and more symptoms. Wow. But I've already said our hormones affect every single cell in our body. So every single organ can be affected. Mm-hmm. Some people have very few or no symptoms. Most of us do have symptoms. Some people can have horrendous symptoms. Some people have symptoms, certainly in the perimenopause, menopause where they have certain symptoms that change within minutes days hours days so it really really Mm. varies but when we've looked at symptoms that we record from the balance app so we've had thousands of people download the free balance app the commonest symptoms are actually brain fog memory problems poor sleep anxiety low mood reduced libido headaches muscle and joint pains 
flushes and sweats are there, but they're actually lower down than you'd imagine. Wow, so that's the number one thing yeah, that I would think absolutely. about. Absolutely. If you, I, mean, I did it a few years ago. This is something I was doing with BBC. We put a, a sort of placard in the middle of Birmingham saying menopause, and we invited people to say, what do you think? What do you think it is? Everyone without fail said flushes, sweats. That's it. That's all people think. Because that's all we've been taught, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. Um, and that's because, I don't know if you know, when they discovered the hormones, this is the most frustrating thing. Many years ago, that when they discovered insulin, mm. they associated with diabetes, a disease. When they discovered thyroxine, it was associated with um, it was Graves' disease because it was Dr. Grave that discovered um, a disease. When they discovered estrogen, they just associated it with flushes and sweats. So it was associated with a symptom rather than a condition. But actually, because we know our hormones work as neurotransmitters, mm -hmm. I've already said they're produced in the brain mm -hmm. as well, it's no surprise that the brain effects are really, really important. Mm -hmm. And I hadn't realised until I've seen thousands of women because these symptoms get better with hormones. So mm -hmm. it's, And that's what's really difficult. If I have a patient in front of me, I have no idea. There's not a test. There's not a blood test. There's not a saliva or urine test to test for the menopause. Mm. So I have no idea. Mm. But often the woman does because she says, you know what? I normally feel like that just before my periods. It's no different. Mm. And I think it's related to my hormones. And, you know, women are quite intuitive as mm -hmm. well. They do often know. So often I'll give HRT because we know it has more benefits than risks. And then you see which symptoms improve. And it doesn't take long to work out how many of the symptoms are related. Mm. Um, but it's difficult to know. And mm -hmm. that's why, I mean, myself included, y you don't always know. Mm. And you think, oh, am I tired because I'm having a difficult time at work? Am I stressed? because my children are doing my head in am I because I've got a new job or you know you, you just and it's really it's really difficult and that's why you know the question you asked me at the beginning the sooner we are fine-tuned and think about how our hormones affect us as an individual mm -hmm. then we're more likely to think actually no I did get symptoms like that before my mm. periods maybe it is related to hormones mm -hmm. let me just think and if I'm, I think I might have PMS when exactly oh look it's just before my periods mm -hmm. or it might not be mood symptoms it might be you're getting migraines just before or mm -hmm. some joint pains or just that CBA that mm. my children sometimes text me you know, it can't be arse feeling you know it's or thinking through treacle or just you know that mm. sort of um and that's why the sooner we can pick it up the sooner we can get treatment mm -hmm. and the less we're suffering we'll get but also thinking about your prevention of disease our hormones are really anti-inflammatory in our body they have really important biologically active roles in our body mm. and we know from research from decades the longer a woman is without her hormones the greater the risk of diseases so that's another, you know, when we're thinking about population health, and we're thinking about even our individuals, you know, none of us want to have diseases. It's not so much the age we live, it's the journey to that age and keeping well is so important. Well, it's interesting because you said to me just before the show and, I, and I've obviously kind of looked a lot through what you do of how much more a menopausal woman is at risk mm. of heart disease. Yeah. And so when we think about actually, you know, the next stage of our life that we, we stay in, it's not, and like you say this a lot, so it's my son, I can take my words mouth, but it's not a transitional period. And when I no. heard you say that, I was like, it's so true. It's not like we just go through this transition of being pregnant and then we're not pregnant. And then our hormones kind yes. of start to come back into our natural flow. Yeah. Our hormones will be that way going forward. And it's forward. really interesting. And it's, it's, it's like... 
it's this light bulb moment, isn't it? And I remember years ago going to a menopause conference and being taught about all the symptoms and everything else. And, and there was this big debate. Do hot flushes last for seven years or 10 years or 20 years? And which paper do you read? And and it's really frustrating sometimes when you go to conferences because they're not remembering the patient. Mm. It's like, oh, it's only seven years seven years hang on a minute someone's suffering for seven years mm-hmm. like what hang on but then I remember going to um, uh, many years ago going to um, a presentation by someone called Walter Rocker who's from the Mayo Institute and I've had him on my podcast actually and he's done a lot of research looking at the the consequences of having your ovaries removed under the age of 40 so he'd followed people up under the age of 40 and he's got this great but really worrying graph about the incidence of diseases that occurs and how there's a a sharp incline in all the inflammatory diseases, so heart disease, osteoporosis, diabetes, dementia, but also drug addiction, psychosis, bipolar, um, kidney disease, lung diseases. Mm. And I remember looking at this when he was lecturing and thinking, this is blowing my brain. Like, why hasn't anyone told me about this? This Mm. is absolutely awful. But then it's like, why is that happening? You know, if you've got an inquisitive mind, it's it's fine being told something, but you want to know why. Yeah, yeah. So then you go back, and I've got a pathology degree as well. So going back to basic physiology, basic pathology, thinking about the importance these hormones have in our body. So I'm not talking about HRT. This is just our natural mm-hmm. hormones. How do they work? You think, yes, well, actually, we've got receptors in our lungs, in our brains, in our kidneys. So, of course, if we don't have them, the mm. the, the these organs can't work as well. Mm -hmm. So whether we have symptoms or not, we've still got these inflammatory processes going on. And of course, our body is amazing. It will adapt. Mm. You know, it's like anything. If you don't have something in your body, your body will change and adapt. Mm -hmm. But why should it? Because Mm -hmm. these are really important hormones that we have. Completely. You're really just making me think about hormones as um, vitamins and minerals. Good. (laughs) Because I I talk a lot about omega-3, right? Very anti-inflammatory. Yes, of course. Um, And when we don't have enough omega-3 mm. you know our body's super clever it would choose another fat absolutely so it would yeah. just bring in a sort of dha or start yes. bringing in cholesterol which is more yes. of a, a structured rigid fat our body will adapt and yeah. it's, it's very similar to how yeah. i'm hearing about with the and endocrine it's, system it's, and, hormones. and it's so interesting and very basic so if you yeah. think all our hormones um some of your listeners might be aware of those those great pathways where you think all our hormones, as in estrogen, progesterone, testosterone, are derived from cholesterol. Mm-hmm. So look, we've been grown up for years being told cholesterol's bad. Uh, yeah. And how can it be bad? It, it forms our cell membranes. It's really important. Of course, there are different types of cholesterol. Mm-hmm. But if you think cholesterol is the first layer before progesterone, and then from pro- progesterone, we get estrogen and testosterone. But there are there are different types of estrogen. There's estradiol and estrone. Estradiol is the good part. Estrogen is the pro-inflammatory part. Mm-hmm. And that's where, you know, men having progesterone, of course they have to have progesterone because it, the testosterone can come from that. Mm-hmm. But everything comes from cholesterol. Mm-hmm. And then you think about vitamin D as well. Is that a hormone or is that a vitamin? Well, it's both really. Yeah. It's really important. Mm-hmm. But that's been neglected. Mm. And it's still a marker of low vitamin D, it can increase inflammation. So all these things work together. Our Mm -hmm. hormones don't work. For some reason, everyone's thought these hormones, estrogen, progesterone, testosterone, just work in one way. Of course they don't. They work Mm. with everything else. Mm. And that's why having the right supplements, having the right nutrition is really crucial or our hormones won't work in the same way. I think that's so important because the next question I wanted to go on was HRT. And I think before we get there, there's Mm. so many important kind of common denominators that you speak about as well that are important, not just for menopause, but I guess through all of your stage Mm. of life with your hormone relationship, right? And 
for me, nutrition has kind of always been a yes. very like fundamental factor yeah. in that. And exercise mm. you speak a lot about. Mm. And I think it's really important to to just touch upon that actually. Yes. Like what's your what's your view around exercise and nutrition around this stage yeah. of life and how women, how should women look at it? It's well it's so important and I think the th- the most important thing is it shouldn't be seen in isolation. Mm-hmm. And I see so many women who've tried to eat the, the way out of the menopause mm-hmm. and they felt failures because they've put on weight, because they, you know, they just had their symptoms haven't improved. Mm-hmm. And actually, yes, there is some studies that if you don't eat chilli or you reduce hot drinks, you might have less hot flushes because, mm-hmm. of course, the studies only look at hot flushes. But actually, it's more than that as well. And so, yes, exercising can improve your mental health. Mm -hmm. Eating the right food can improve your mental health. Try saying to many menopausal or perimenopausal women, or maybe you, I don't know, the day before your period, Mm. right, come on, exercise, come on, eat the best food ever, come on. I'm on the sofa with chocolate and a hot water bottle. That's because you haven't got hormones in your body. Mm. And that's how people feel. Mm. And so, so I feel really strongly that balance everything and the rest, you know, fits mm. into place. So so balancing your hormones often can mean that people feel more motivated, more likely to think, oh, what's for supper tonight? It's less of an effort to go shopping. Mm. It's less of an effort to cook. It's easier to exercise. You haven't got the muscle joint pain, reduced stamina, so forth. Mm. So, and then when you exercise and eat better it can help balance your hormones too mm-hmm. but if you haven't got the hormones it's really difficult mm-hmm. actually yeah um obviously some women choose not to take hormones but more, that's mainly because they haven't thought about them in the right way but you can't mm. make hormones if you're so much you can't mm. eat them yeah um so it's it's having that whole balance together mm-hmm. um and I think the problem is for too long we've been told HRT is so scary, we shouldn't do it, it should be the last resort. And I heard someone talking recently saying, well, of course, if you if you eat well and you exercise, you probably won't have any perimenopausal symptoms. Well, on personal experience, I couldn't have eaten better before I experienced symptoms. And I was doing regular exercise. Of course, anyone can always do better exercise. Mm. But I was still doing a lot and I still felt absolutely awful. Mm. So, you know, and we're all different. Mm. But I think we can't... We can't kid ourselves that our lifestyle is going to improve. It's, you know, if someone had an underactive thyroid gland or someone was anemic, mm-hmm. yes, they could make these changes. But until you replace that deficiency, it's not going to have the same effect. So let's talk about HRT. Mm. And I and I, it's interesting that so hormone deficiency. Now I'm. It's so interesting how. All of this conversation coming into this was a lot about the menopause and perimenopause. But now I'm just thinking uh-huh. hormone deficiency in general. Yes. Because even thinking about it for me, who's not in perimenopause, I still get scared. And I'm not quite sure why I'm feeling scared. And I think that's why it's so important to bring mm. this up. Because no Absolutely. one talks about it. No. And so first of all, what is HRT? Yeah. Um, let's kind of like understand yeah. what that is. And then you said something really interesting. Well, there's way more benefits than mm. risks. Sarah, I'm so sorry to cut in, but since Live Well, Be Well is all about health and well-being, I need to tell you what great mental shape I'm in today. Since we started producing this podcast, it seems that you've been on quite a health journey. And seeing you blossom honestly fills me with joy. My sleep cycle's on point. My gut microbiome is in better shape than ever. I'm even doing HIIT workouts. Can you believe it? But the reason I rudely interrupted this interview is to tell you about the adaptogenic coffee that you've suggested to me earlier this week, which contains lion's mane mushroom and rhodiola. Two things I personally don't know much about. Perhaps you can enlighten me. Science shows that lion's mane mushroom is known to improve memory, mental clarity, concentration, and overall, just your brain health. And rhodiola is a powerful adaptogen. 
known for its effects on stress levels and brain functioning. Okay, that's all sounding very exciting indeed. And I can confirm these shroomy coffees are absolutely delicious. And they come in these single sachets, which is incredibly convenient. But I don't really understand what makes them so special. So what exactly is adaptogenic coffee? The medicinal mushrooms and coffee are probably one of the most perfect pairings. You get all the benefits of regular coffee, which we do love, whilst minimising any side effects. So why does this happen? I know you're going to ask. Caffeine is a nootropic. It increases our alertness and our attention. But many of us will have experienced the increased levels of the stress hormone cortisol, which results in, sadly, the jitters and anxiety. This has 100% worked wonders for me this week. So where can people get them? Okay, so if you want to try these at home, we have a special discount code from the amazing brand London Nootropics, and they have three different blends to choose from. So listen up, Sam. Here is your mix. You can have Zen. It's probably the most balancing. It's great if you're caffeine sensitive. Then you've got Mojo. This is perfect for that natural boost. If you're feeling a bit fatigued, it makes a really good pre-workout because of the cordyceps and also, get this, the Siberian ginseng. And my favourite, to experience the effects of lion's mane and rhodiola, get yourself some of the Flow Blend. We've got a bit of a treat for the listeners, right? A discount code? Yes, we do, Sam. And I know that you love it because you love a discount. So all you need to do is use the code LIVEWELLBEWELL to get 20% off at londonutropics.com. A box of each blend is only £15, so you're kind of getting a very good deal here. And subscriptions start at £12 a month, delivered straight to your door. It's really interesting, isn't it? Because even those three letters just scare people. Yeah. So it's always HRT and breast cancer, and I can talk about the, the breast cancer risk. Yeah. But actually, even HRT, like, it doesn't really say what it is, does it? Because no. it's saying hormone replacement therapy. Mm -hmm. Sorry, is it replacing every single hormone in mm -hmm. my body? course it's not mm. we're just talking actually usually it's only about the two estrogen and progesterone because mm -hmm. if we prescribe testosterone we have to say hrt and testosterone mm -hmm. so some countries call it mht menopause hormonal treatment but i don't really like that because we mm. don't wait for the menopause to give it so it's actually all it is is some natural hormones so mm. we should really say what it is mm -hmm. as in whether it's estrogen, progesterone or testosterone, like we call insulin or thyroxine. It's mm -hmm. just it had this term. Mm. So all it is is hormones and we replace them. But we actually, in the perimenopause, we're just topping up what's missing. So we're not okay. replacing them as in getting rid of what, what's there already. Mm. So it's been made to feel really complicated and it's not. And that's why I've spent quite a lot of time talking about what our natural hormones do. Mm -hmm. Because then me saying to you, well, those few days before your periods, you're having this hormone deficiency. Hopefully you're thinking, well, maybe I should have hormones. But you're probably not sitting there thinking, oh, maybe I'll have HRT because that sounds like scary. But yeah. natural hormones sounds fine, doesn't mm -hmm. it? And yeah. so we're really fortunate that we do have natural hormones. So we have what we call the body identical hormones. So essentially, if you look down the microscope, they're exactly the same stru structure as the hormones we produce when we're younger. Mm. But other hormones, so all the contraceptives, whether they're combined contraception or the progesterone-only contraceptive, they're all synthetic. So they're similar, but they've been chemically changed. Mm -hmm. And you can imagine, I sort of say sometimes to people, it's like 
putting a key in a lock and the key hasn't been completely cut properly. We've all mm-hmm. had that, haven't you? You put it mm. in and then you can't twist it. And that's a bit like that with some of the synthetic hormones, that they will lock onto the receptors, but they won't have this lovely, beautiful anti-inflammatory mm. cascade of reactions that go on to help our cells to function. And so the synthetic hormones are great at switching off our ovaries, but they won't have all these lovely good biological Mm. processes and old types of HRT were exactly the same so many years ago when I was a junior doctor we used to prescribe the pregnant horses urine HRT because that's all we had so it was derived from pregnant horses urine had lots of different estrogens in it it was a tablet and it was a tablet with a synthetic progesterone Mm -hmm. so that as you know anything you put in your mouth has to be metabolized broken down by the liver to go in the bloodstream so breaking it down can produce all sorts of other hormones Mm -hmm more sort of chemical hormones, if you like. And so they had more side effects. They had more effects on the liver. They had more effects as in there was an increased risk of clotting, increased risk of heart attack, increased risk of stroke. Small increased risk, but they were still there. Mm. But that was all we had to prescribe. Mm. So even then the benefits were greater than the risks for most women. But now we don't prescribe those, you'll be pleased to know. We've got... (laughs) Phew. Yeah. So we've got the natural hormones, so the estradiol, which Mm -hmm. as I've already said is a good part, not the estrone. And we usually prescribe that as a patch or gel so it goes through the skin Mm -hmm. just into the bloodstream. So it keeps as its active form. And that can be given at different doses, different strengths. And then... The progesterone is the natural progesterone, usually given orally, but it can be given as a suppository as well. Mm -hmm. And then it's the pure progesterone as well. And the same with testosterone, it's either a cream or a gel. So we can give the right dose, the right type, the right combination to each person. Whereas before it was like a combination pill, here you go, Mm -hmm. take it and see how you go. Mm And so the studies that everyone's scared about with the breast cancer risk... I wanted to bring that up, yeah, yeah are associated with the older types of hormone. So it's like comparing, you know, apples and pears. It's completely different. It's like, it just, but even if you unpick those, there's one study that everyone still refers to, which is incredibly (laughs) frustrating because there's been so many randomised control studies on other medication that has just been ignored. Mm. But it just goes, we will talk about it And it's the Women's Health Initiative study, Mm. which probably should not really have been done in the first place because it was a bit of a weird study because when it it was started in the uh, 1990s, we knew hormones were beneficial. We knew that they had benefits on the brain and the heart and the bones. But they wanted to see, do they have other effects when started in older women? Mm. Because they knew they had good effects starting in younger women. Um, So the average age in this group were um, 63. Mm -hmm. So these women had not had HRT. They wanted women without symptoms because HRT is so effective because it's treating the underlying cause. They knew if they were women with lots of symptoms, you'd soon know who was on placebo and who was on HRT, of course. So they waited till women were older, didn't have symptoms. But a lot of those women actually had had heart attacks, heart disease. They were obese. So they were higher risk, if Mm. you like. And they were giving them the tablet type of older type of horses urine HRT with a synthetic progesterone and we know they have small risks anyway Mm. so anyway they gave that then they found that they there was a small increase incidence of breast cancer rather than analyzing it properly they just Mm. went to the media went to the medical press the rest is history if you like and HRT prescribing fell off a cliff 
But when they've analysed the data properly, um, and now we've got 20-year data because it was so long mm. ago, they found that this, this increased incidence of breast cancer wasn't even statistically significant. And actually what they found that women who only took oestrogen had a 23% lower incidence of breast cancer. So the baddie, if you like, is the synthetic progestogen that's mm -hmm. in all the contraceptives, by the way. And um, that's but, something that yeah, goes so unmentioned. It, that goes unmentioned. But actually... They also found that if women did get breast cancer mm. on their HRT, they had a lower risk of dying from their breast cancer. And so it's really more, seems to be more of an association rather than a cause. Causation. But the other thing we have to remember when you're thinking in a bigger picture is most women worldwide die from heart disease and dementia. They don't die from breast cancer. Breast mm. cancer is very common. Mm. One in seven women uh, develop breast cancer. So actually we still know that HRT reduces the risk of heart disease osteoporosis affects one in two women so well, that was we, we one of the biggest sort things of, when we think yeah. about estrogen lowering we think about bone density yeah right? ab absolutely and that's really important mm. and so the narrative has always been about breast cancer breast cancer but actually the the body identical the natural hormones have never been shown to be associated with breast cancer risk and even if we think i sometimes sort of play mind games and think well if I was my 12-year-old or if I was a Martian from outer space and just listened to this noise about HRT and breast cancer, when the WHI study came out and everyone stopped taking HRT, mm -hmm. HRT prescribing was about 30% of menopausal women in the UK and it was increasing as women were learning the benefits and feeling better. Around 1 in 12 women were mm. getting a breast cancer then. Mm. Now, HRT prescribing has more than halved, mm -hmm. whereas the incidence of breast cancer is 1 in 7. So it's quite hard to say, mm, you know, breast cancer incidence has really increased, but HRT prescribing has reduced. Mm. So even if you didn't know anything about physiology or pathophysiology or risk factors for breast cancer, you would still be able to think, Mm, it can't all be related to HRT. HRT. Do you see what totally. I mean? So why do you think there's so much? Because everything you're telling me makes complete logical sense. <laughs> why do you think there is so much stigma around HRT or so much fear yeah. around HRT? I guess that's like the decisive question. Yeah, I, I think about this a lot. And I often think, am I deluded? Am I mad? Have I read something that no one else has read? Or have I not read something that people mm. haven't? But I've come from a, a background of, of science and I've read so many papers but mm. what I have also got the privilege of having a pathology degree as well I can understand basic science mm. so it's a quite a privilege but I've also for 20 years worked um, or before I started the clinic I had this portfolio career so I had lots of part-time jobs mm -hmm. making up a full so I had time to read papers I had I did a lot of medical writing whereas if you're a busy busy doctor and you're seeing patients all the time it's really difficult to get off that hamster wheel and just think, well, I'm going to spend a week reading Lancet papers and mm -hmm. reading other academic papers and going back to basic science. Mm -hmm. um, and you learn by rote often, but also change is really difficult for people mm. so I'm coming along and saying oh hormones are great initially people are like what the hell is she talking about that's not what I've learned mm. but if someone says to me and things change all the time in medicine you know what I prescribe for someone with raised blood pressure now is not what I did in the 1980s or 90s you mm -hmm. know when I was very young junior doctor 
but you learn and you think, why am I doing this? What am mm -hmm. I doing? So it's this professional mm -hmm. curiosity. Mm -hmm. But it's not just me. I'm not I'm not on a soapbox, like deluded mm -hmm. and no one else is saying. There's lots of really good academics that we work with, lots of people who are understanding as well the mm. basic science. And so there is a huge movement of change. Um, even our education program has had over 32,000 downloads. And when mm. I go to medical conferences, a lot of doctors are going, it's amazing, you've opened my eyes to something I'd not thought about. And that is the and beauty of the science, important. by the way, right? Of course right? it is, absolutely Like, it's the is. nuance of it. And it's the hypothesis is, I always remember this, is to always, the, the best scientists try to prove that hypothesis wrong. Absolutely. Like, I would love, you know, I'm quite geeky, I'm quite academic. With my research group, we often do have heated discussions about a paper we've read, and I love it. Mm. I love an academic challenge. I would love people to say, do you know what, Louise, what you're saying is completely wrong because mm -hmm. ABC. And I'd go, great, show me those papers, let me read and let's discuss. Mm -hmm. But I always also, in medicine, because I want to sleep at night and being mm -hmm. a doctor, you want to do the best for your patients. Mm -hmm. I often think, well, let's look at the worst case scenario. Okay, so look at the study that shows the worst incidents. And mm -hmm. lots of those studies are observational studies. They're so not randomized trials. So look at, but if you look at the sort of people who have written studies and showing it's worse, terrible, terrible. Mm -hmm. And I went to a, listening to a talk recently with somebody who was saying how dangerous HRT was and said one in 20 women taking HRT will get breast cancer. Now that sounds awful, but hang on a minute, I've just told you one in seven women get breast cancer. Well, that's really good because that shows some protection, doesn't it? So, but even if you look at the worst studies, it's still not, uh, you still got benefits more than risks. Mm -hmm. You still got, you know, benefits even if you forget all the disease improvements actually women who take hrt feel better i absolutely love interviews like this one which give you so much useful advice for your own life and if it's helped you this is an invitation to join my inner circle it will give you exclusive access to a host of things expert written articles nutritious delicious recipes your own members hub newsletter podcast plus and also products and discounts decided by me for you for one very small investment, it will help guide and support your health. If you use the code SAMCOMMUNITY, you can get 20% off your Inner Circle membership. Just head to www.sarahannmacklin.com. So say yes, and we're not saying you do have high risk of breast cancer, we're actually saying no. that you don't. But say if that was yes. the case, wouldn't you rather have a better quality of life than actually having a life full of pain? Yeah. And then getting breast cancer. Well, this is, and, and this is the individual choice. So we're doing yeah. a lot of work uh, for women who've had breast cancer because a lot of these women are told they can't have hormones. And, you know, it's a very individualised decision. But I see women, I saw a lady last week in my clinic who'd had breast cancer 20 years ago when she was a lot younger. She'd had a menopause because of her treatment. As I've already said, chemotherapy can lead to, to, to menopause. And then her periods came back when she was in her mid-40s and she started to feel wonderful. And the oncologist didn't mind, said, oh, that's great, you'll probably feel better now. Mm. And then she became 50, her period stopped, she felt dreadful. So when I saw her, she had had a few years of symptoms, she could no longer work, she was really struggling to have a relationship with her husband because she was so moody, irritable, tired. She'd put on weight, so she'd had more of this pro-inflammatory estrone mm. in her body anyway, this not very nice estrogen. And she said, I'm just existing, I'm not living. 
I'm actually worried because my mother had dementia and osteoporosis. My uncle had a heart attack when he was in his 50s. I've tried various alternatives, but I'm being denied HRT because I had breast cancer 20 years ago. But she's already had five years of hormones, naturally, after her breast cancer without any recurrence. So for her, actually, how can I say to her, no, 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 you can't have something that may or may not increase your risk of breast cancer in the future. She knows what it's like to have had breast cancer Mm. as well. And this is where I think with medicine and science, when we're talking about helping people, it's got to be an individualized process, Mm -hmm. you know. one in seven women will get breast cancer whether they take HRT or not Mm. so that means one in seven women and it's probably less because estrogen is so anti-inflammatory but even if you say one in seven women taking HRT will get breast cancer doesn't mean the HRT's caused it Mm. but if that individual is going to worry every day and regret taking it don't take it it's like Mm. saying you've got a risk of having a car crash when you go in your car Mm. if you're going to worry every time then just get you know, just walk, mm-hmm. don't go in the car. Mm-hmm. But I think we've not been treated as adults in this conversation. Mm. Women have just been told what they can and can't have. Mm. And I feel in medicine, you can't do that. No. Well, there's a lot of fear in it. And mm. there's a lot of shame and there's a lot of stigma. And I think women just feel quite lost in the yes, conversation. Yeah. And so because of that, the easiest route is just to maybe not acknowledge yeah. the symptoms and the pain that they're feeling. Yeah. And secondly, not to take anything. And it also kind of makes me feel a little bit that it's similar to antidepressants. It's exactly. Well, what's even worse, it's interesting because you say don't take anything. And there was an article in the BMJ not that long ago saying all this work, especially my work is causing over-medicalisation of the menopause, i.e. too many women are getting their hormones back. Um but actually, it's being medicalised already. We see a lot of women who are on antidepressants, antipsychotics, they're on blood pressure-lowering treatments, they're on sleeping tablets, they're on painkillers, they're on statins to lower their cholesterol. Often when they take HRT, they don't need any of those drugs. Not mm-hmm. great for big pharma. But I really worry, and I know you've got such good mental health knowledge, I worry about the overprescribing of antidepressants. We know mm-hmm. that women who are, and men who are on SSRIs have an increased incidence of osteoporosis. Mm-hmm. I've already said one or two women have osteoporosis. But actually there's increasing evidence that, that antidepressants can switch off our sex hormones yeah. as well. So if you're not perimenopausal before, you, you probably will be after. Mm-hmm. So And we know antidepressants work better if you've got estrogen on board. Mm-hmm. So it shouldn't be, you know, some people need antidepressants, fine. Mm. But many, many women I see and speak to have been given antidepressants instead of HRT. Mm. So where's the evidence for that, Mm -hmm. you know? Well, that's just the confusion of the landscape that basically Mm. it's the narrative that's coming out the strongest in mainstream media and it's where people feel they're being directed to. And I think that's, that's the... I think that's the anger behind all of it, the frustration mm. actually more than the anger. It's just more of the the frustration that so many women, 51% of the population, feel lost. Yes. That's a huge amount. It's awful. Half of us. It's horrible. You know, it's 51% of, of us are going to feel lost. And I think that comes on really well to the amount of listener questions that I got. And I've got to make sure I get some in. Go on then. So I'll, I'll go with one with HRT because you've already talked about the breast cancer one. How much does HRT affect cholesterol levels? 
So when we talk about HT here, it will be body identical hormones. Mm -hmm. So the natural hormones actually lower cholesterol um, because the menopause is a cardiometabolic problem. So mm -hmm. people find that their sugar, as in their glucose levels, will increase, their blood pressure will increase, and their cholesterol, their, their bad cholesterol, if you like, their LDL cholesterol will increase when they don't have estrogen in their bodies. So that's a tick. Mm. So this one came out and it's kind of, it's mixed into a few different questions because this is the number one question that came out, which is interesting because it relates to my PMS. Um, but how can women support themselves or what would you advise for symptoms such as anxiety, depression and insomnia? And there was a mix of questions alongside that with perimenopause and in case of intrusive thoughts, mm. anxiety. So mm. that seems to be, and you mentioned there about the neurotransmitters yeah. in the brain. Yeah. Um, this seems to be a huge thing. It's massive. It's absolutely massive. And especially the anxiety can be really overwhelming for a lot of people. A lot of people do have intrusive, quite irrational thoughts. Mm. Um, and they can often overthink and just really ruminate. Mm. And quite different to just a bit of anxiety. You know, everyone mm -hmm. gets a bit. Mm. But it can be really overwhelming. And people really quite catastrophize um, and have quite dark thoughts sometimes as well. Now, Often in medicine, like I said, you treat the underlying cause. So if people think it's related to their hormones, then often we do give hormones, but increasingly it's not just the estrogen and progesterone. Testosterone as well works really well as a neurotransmitter. We found just our huge clinical experience and others in other clinics mm -hmm. have found as well that certainly mood, anxiety, sleep can really improve with testosterone as well. So if I see a patient in, with me who's got all those symptoms, clearly there might be other reasons as well. But often, you know, we rebalance the hormones to a physiological response mm. and then see what else is left. Because far too often people have been trying lots of other things. And of course, they might help a little bit, but you won't know how much is related to hormones until you've had the hormones mm. back. Because doing the testing is not going to help. And is there any risk of when you go on these hormones? Like, is there any, obviously there is risks in everything that you take, even if you take paracetamol. But what's the kind of the risks associated with so when people go on there what is there some things that they should just be aware of that maybe then they so, come back to yeah. and speak, so speak about obviously all we're doing is the natural hormones mm -hmm. um so the they also just to reassure people they don't last in the body they people think that once you've got some gel on or a patch on that's it they'll only the half-life of the gel off. is only 18 hours and the patch if i took my patches off now I can tell you tomorrow I'll have a migraine and joint pains, but it, it doesn't take long to work out of your system. So that's really reassuring for that people really to know. Um, so the commonest side effects really are some bleeding that people can get because the oestrogen can stimulate the lining of the womb. Mm -hmm. And the womb, if it's stimulated, can cause bleeding, but that usually settles down. If people know it can settle down, that's fine. And there are things that we can do if people mm -hmm. have bleeding. Sometimes people have breast tenderness, and you, mm -hmm. you know, some people get breast tenderness throughout their cycle. Yeah, I was going to say that's actually it's, a symptom yeah. anyway. For and that's women. well, it's a symptom related to hormones. So if we're giving hormones, it can, and that usually settles as well. Mm -hmm. um, but there aren't any other risks. Unfortunately, if you open the insert, and which I do of my patches, it will say risk of clot, risk of stroke, which which risk of heart disease, risk of everything. But actually, that's not related to any evidence at all so you just can't read it because what they've done is they've clumped all the studies together they've quoted from the whi study it's not relevant for the transdermal preparations and the natural hormones mm. so actually a lot of what i'm trying to think of and educate people is what is the risk of not taking hormones because that's what's more important so mm -hmm. there are risks that symptoms can continue 
There are risks that there's increased bone turnover, risk of osteoporosis, increased inflammation in the body. So all those other inflammatory conditions like heart disease, diabetes, dementia can go forth. And there's a risk that other symptoms will continue and persist. So actually for three month trial, and we do it a lot in medicine. Mm. Like if I think someone's, if someone's in pain, like mm-hmm. they've got migraine, I'll start with a first line treatment of a painkiller. If it, if it doesn't help, then I'll try something else. Mm. Like we're used to doing that all the time in medicine. Mm-hmm. But somehow about hormones, it's like it has to be last resort treatments. Mm. Um, and I, I can't quite understand why that's happened. It's the fearful approach, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. It's the fearful approach. Yes. Yeah, totally. So somebody said, why does my jaw hurt? Am I grinding my teeth? Is this another symptom? I feel like, I mean, you know, I'm not even a menopause doctor, but that makes me feel like that somebody's so stressed yeah. about what's so It's a combination. So stress obviously can affect the muscles, but also our hormones are very anti-inflammatory in our muscles and joints. Mm. So they help with the, the synovial fluid, that nice fluid that cushions all mm. our joints, the cartilage as well. It keeps the cartilage supple as well. Mm. So you can imagine if you haven't got those hormones... The, the muscles become stiffer, the joints become stiffer as well, there's less fluid. Um, so a bit of grinding teeth that you wouldn't really notice any pain can mm. actually be really uncomfortable. Mm. And actually hormone levels, especially in the perimenopause, are lower at night time. So many women say to me, when they get out of bed in the morning, they feel like an old lady, everything's seized up, walking down the stairs is really uncomfortable. Um, and then they sort of get going and that's often because the hormones start to come back. Mm. Um, and so that's the same with any any joint as well. So there can obviously be a combination of reasons why that's happening. God, it reminds me of the cortisol levels where they drop in the yeah, evening and rise say, in the but morning. All our hormones what I mean. fluctuate all the time, yeah. don't they? And they all work together. Mm. So if you're more stressed and you produce more cortisol and more noradrenaline and adrenaline, then your estradiol level requ- or your estradiol requirements are going to be different as well. Mm-hmm. That's why our bodies are amazing. All these hormones work together, don't they? You're probably listening to this show because you care about your health, both physical and mental. That's why I created Live Well, Be Well to share new ways to think about your health. I want to talk to you quickly about something that we all experience, and that is stress. Now, we can all get stressed about a host of things, even the minor things. And stress triggers the primal response. So even simply sitting in a meeting or traffic can trigger this. This brings me on to something called the vagus nerve. And it is incredibly important within the stress response and for calming our primal brains. This device I've been using is called Sensei. Now, it's a wearable touch therapy device. Research has proven that the vagus nerve activation calms the brain medulla responsible for stress and anxiety. Sensei is a device which uses infrasound resonance. And when paired with the sessions in the Sensei Companion app, it helps reduce stress and improve overall well-being. In 10 or 30-minute sessions, you can feel an incredible sense of peace, reducing all those small moments of feeling stress or anxiety throughout your day. This device is generally a piece of modern magic and such an exciting step in modern well-being technology. It makes the perfect gift or even better, a self-care purchase. To experience a sense of calm at home, work, or even commuting with your busy lifestyle, just go to getsensate.com and use the code SARAHANN to get 10% off your first order. This is another one, and I actually think this is really important, and I haven't, I know there's a lot of evidence on this, but I just, I don't see it talked about enough. Vaginal dryness. Yes causing pain and discomfort yeah it's really common yeah so about 80 percent of menopausal women will have symptoms related to vaginal dryness that's huge and about eight percent have treatment which is disgusting isn't it i know it's that awful low? yes 
Well, some studies I've read is like 10, 11%. So you could maybe push it up to one in 10 women. But the minority of women are receiving treatment. And it's really important that you talk about it because, but it's not just vaginal dryness. So Mm. we've got hormone receptors, I've already Mm -hmm. said, everywhere. Mm -hmm. But they're in our vulva, vagina. They're also in our urinary tract as well. So in our urethra, the tube we wee out of. They're in our bladder. They're in our um, pelvic floor as well. Mm. Um, So a lot of people think, oh, I'm not having sex, therefore it doesn't matter. Actually, I see a lot of women who can't sit down. They can't wear underclothes. Mm. They can't walk. You know, our vagina... (laughs) Sorry to talk about the vagina. No, so I think we but should it always has talk to about be, the vagina. It's supposed to be stretchy. It's supposed mm. to be well lubricated. We're not supposed to be aware mm-hmm. of, yeah. of it, you know, other than having sex or, it's not meant to or cause whatever. Us pain. It's not supposed to cause us pain mm. or discomfort it's at to all. It's pleasure. It is. It's supposed to be yeah, something pleasurable. But a lot of people think, oh, it's just part of getting older or it might be mm. itchy, it might be sore. They might have more discharge, so it's not always mm. the dryness mm. as well but also the urinary symptoms. So a lot of people find coughing, sneezing, uncomfortable. Mm. They can't hold on to urine. They're rushing to the toilet. They're getting up in the night two or three times, but they think, oh, it's all just... And it's been normalised, isn't it? You can go to the chemist and buy pads. So if you cough and sneeze, it's fine. It's like making it normal. But actually, a lot of the time, that's related to low hormones in those areas, um, which can exacerbate all those symptoms. Mm. And it's one of the symptoms that gets worse with time. So it's not about, is it only lasting seven years or so? It will get worse. And when we think about urinary symptoms and urinary tract infections and cystitis, most of us have had a urinary tract Mm. infection. Many Mm. of us have had recurrent urinary tract Mm -hmm. infections. But if you think about sepsis, 30% of admissions to hospital for sepsis are urosepsis related to urinary tract infections. Most of those will be related to women and it will be related to the hormones. And we know that one of the treatments is vaginal hormones. Mm. So we've talked about HRT, which is systemic Mm. hormones, but there's also vaginal hormones. So these come as vaginal tablet, pessary, gel, cream. There's even a ring that lasts for three months. So they're literally inserted in the vagina, but they don't just work in the vagina. They seep out to the surrounding tissues. So they can be transformational for um, urinary symptoms, urinary frequency. We know, we've known for decades, they reduce the incidence of urinary tract infections so women whether they take hrt or not can still use vaginal hormones and women who've had breast cancer who may be advised not to start off using hrt can -hmm. still use vaginal hormones so it's really like most women should probably be using vaginal hormones but it's not just menopause can occur in the perimenopause but it can also occur younger especially with women who are on contraception wow it's yeah I didn't even know about that. That's so. Yeah. That's such so, an important it's area. It's absolutely crucial. So lots of women who are young who have recurrent urinary tract infections, we should be thinking about vaginal hormones. Women who are breastfeeding, that hormones level are low, they might be having some vaginal symptoms, discomfort or urinary tract um, symptoms, we should be thinking about vaginal hormones as well. I'm just kind of thinking, we're, we've, we've spoke about such a variety of things here and, you know, amazing solutions to painful problems mm. that so many women are experiencing. But something I definitely want to make sure that I include in this podcast that it's not all doom and gloom. Yes. Because I read something in your book and I'm so glad that you had written it because you said, actually, it's a really empowering stage Mm. in my life. Mm. And I know that you've got a really incredible story of how this has kind of become so fundamental to what you believe in. But I'd love to talk about that part of it because I think sometimes when we can talk about all the symptoms and how we can find out the different solutions and the confusion and all of this... We kind of end up leaving it, and and I've had this not from you, but just from generally researching about the menopause and feeling quite sad for my mum that I wasn't aware she went through it. 
And the pain that she went through, I was obviously blindsided because I was a teenager and she didn't have any support. Mm. That you then think, gosh, God, that's coming to me soon and I'm really fearful of it and I'm getting anxiety thinking about it. How can we think about it in a, in a less severe way? I think we should. We have to way. be empowering. Is really important. Yeah. I think we have to be armed with knowledge. Yeah. Because knowledge is power, and yeah. we've had that knowledge stripped away from us for far too long, mm. and we've been told it's something that is awful. We just have to battle through it. We just have to get on with it. I've already Keep said. Calm and carry on. Yeah, the absolutely. Which is the worst thing statement ever. Statement ever. <laughs> but actually, we know that there's there's treatment, mm. and so we know from all the guidelines that the first line treatment for the majority of women is HRT. You wouldn't think it because only 14% of menopausal women in the UK take HRT. Globally, it's about 5 to 6%. There's nothing. So women are being denied evidence-based treatment for no reason. So we need to be thinking, and I'm talking about for the majority of women. Mm -hmm. So, But if we want to help as many people as possible, we need to be thinking again, why are we not taking hormones? Mm. So we've got a treatment. Mm. We can't just dangle a carrot. And it's it's great people are talking about the menopause. I love Mm -hmm. that the conversation is really exploding. But I also feel really sad that we're talking about it. Yes, well, let's just talk and have a cup of tea and that will help me feel better. Mm. It's not going to replace my hormones. Mm. So we need to think about that. And it's a bit coming back to like your pregnancy thing we need to just take control and decide what's best for us if the best thing is to take hormones because you want to reduce your risk of diseases and feel better whatever that's fine if you want to take up a new exercise and ignore hormones that's fine as well but Mm -hmm. you need to work out based on the evidence what's right for you Mm -hmm. and then enjoy that journey Mm -hmm. because do you know what being old is really hard Mm -hmm. you know but it and also, it can be really good because you've got life experiences, you've got knowledge, you've got different groups of friends, you might have a mm. job that you really enjoy, mm-hmm. you know, you, things might be easier. So actually, we want to just make it really positive, mm. but it's working out everything in that sort of circle, if you like. And, mm-hmm. you know, we've got so much great information about well-being, about nutrition, about, you know, what to do about alcohol or smoking or sleep. But actually, very few people are talking about hormones because they're so scared of them. Mm. But actually, if we've got everything right, it can make a huge difference. Mm. But it's planning it before Mm -hmm. we're in the midst of it because Mm -hmm. it can be just too much to take on board sometimes. It's such, it's just like the one thing that seems to stream through this podcast, which I'm so happy about, it's all about the prevention and making Mm, an action plan. Absolutely. As opposed to being in the middle of it, in the chaos where your hormones, ironically, are everywhere and you're stressed. Trying to then figure out an action plan is yeah. much more difficult when you're yes. in that moment than before. Absolutely, yeah. It, and it's crucially important because we can't make the right choices when we're stressed mm. or in case we make short-term choices. So mm-hmm. I'm, in, I'm sure others have done it. I used to do it many years ago when I ate chocolate. Oh my God, I'm so hungry. I'm just going to pick up a Mars mm. bar, pick up a piece mm-hmm. of chocolate. You have it and for those two minutes you feel great and then you feel awful. Mm. Like, Why have I done that? Then you're filled with guilt and everything else. And and that's because you hadn't planned. You had, didn't have some snacks or whatever or a drink, you know, mm-hmm. in your bag. And then you've spent money and then you feel worse. So it's the same for the menopause. It's going to happen. We've said it might happen for many women. It is half their life. Mm. Many women, it's at least 20, 30 years. What mm. else happens for so long? Mm. But we shouldn't see it as just a transition. We should mm. see it as a wake-up call. Mm-hmm. I think, right, come on then. What are we going to do? How mm. are we really going to manage it? And how I manage my menopause is going to be different to how others are you mm-hmm. know but we don't need to judge others no you know i'm i'm blind
excited by migraines, so I'm completely obsessed with what I eat, drink, how I plan my food, because otherwise I'll get a migraine. Mm. But actually, in some ways, that's quite good because I have to be really controlling. But I don't expect others to live such a rigid life as me Mm -hmm. and to not drink or whatever. But that's fine. Mm. Just do what works for you and that's right for you. Mm -hmm. But also share it with others because it can be a really isolating journey as well. That was my next question and how I kind of want to bring all of this together is, you know, I am so passionate about Mm. mental health so passionate about breaking stigmas Mm. around talking around these things. Now, I feel like a lot of women kind of get to this stage of life and maybe shut off from their partner, Mm. maybe shut off from their children if they've got a family, because they feel they've got to try and keep it together. So what kind of words of wisdom can you give to kind of anyone listening to this who has this shame or has this fear about actually opening up and being vulnerable and and, and speaking about how they feel? It's so important to talk. Mm. Any... It's so hard, especially when we're talking about mental health aspects of the perimenopause, menopause Mm. or PMS, PMDD. You know, if I had a bleeding sore on my hand and showed it to you, you would hopefully immediately say, is (laughs) it painful? If I just tell you, look, I'm absolutely exhausted and I'm really tired and I've got no self-esteem and I feel really low, you might sit there feeling really uncomfortable thinking, oh my goodness, what am I going to say to her? Like, Mm. she's a bit, oh. But actually, if I say but I'd really want to talk I really want to know how much I can do to help and what options are and actually like even just faced with a book when you've in the midst of it it might be too much but actually saying to a partner a a, a relative you know do you mind just helping me a bit to muddle through can be really helpful and Mm. you know even my it was my you know middle daughter that recognized I was so moody that she thought it was related to my hormones so then picking up is really important Mm. as well um and being part of it so you're not alone because Mm. mental health is really quite scary yeah for a lot of people Mm -hmm. it's very isolating Mm -hmm. and it makes people become more withdrawn and isolated but if people know the menopause is not just about flushes sweats and actually the other thing that a lot of women say to me is that I can't admit that I'm on HRT because I'll be judged. My my friends, my family will just say, no, what are you doing? It's almost like it's a last resort treatment. Mm. But then if you sort of know why you're taking it and feel really confident and know that you're not just taking it for your health, your immediate health, but you're to prevent disease as well, you'll be the one that's sort of better going forward, if you see what Mm -hmm, I mean. mm -hmm. But also knowing that any decision you make about any treatment is reversible. You don't have to make the decision now. You can make it in the future or Mm -hmm. you can change your mind. Mm -hmm. And we've got some really great, nice guidance and shared decision making. And I think empowering the individual to make the choices and not having this paternalistic medicine, Mm. you must or you mustn't or you need to or you shouldn't, Mm -hmm. then you are the patient you are central to it Mm. and if you don't get what you are expecting from your first consultation you're allowed to seek help from elsewhere as well and I think that's really important for people I was going to say actually people listen to this then thinking well maybe I've been denied Mm. HRT or maybe I've been kind of looked at as and you're just going through this phase and it's only gonna last however long and and try x y and z I guess what's the leaving advice for anyone who kind of does feel in that way they shouldn't that they should they shouldn't give up because it's not like a short-term thing that mm-hmm. they can just ignore even if their symptoms don't get worse the health risks are always there mm-hmm. so you know talk to someone have someone who's an advocate for you mm. to help and none of us as healthcare professionals mind if someone has a second opinion or a third opinion or a differing opinion mm-hmm. you know we've already said that medicine is an 
an art and a science mm. and you're allowed to explore and find the right person for you and it, mm -hmm. it it's often a combination of treatments that's really mm. going to balance things properly i love that it is the combination it's never mm. it's very very rarely one solution Absolutely. to a problem yeah. which is really important mm. um so my last question louise to you is what does live well be well mean to you Oh, it's great, isn't it? it? When you say those words, live well, be well, it's it, oh, immediately you can't say it without smiling, can't you? <laughs> and you did it as well when you said it, which is which is great. I think it's more of an internal thing, actually. Mm. It's very hard to describe because I think it takes a while to live well and be well. Mm -hmm. We can all have a good well day, but mm -hmm. it's about something that's sustainable mm -hmm. and it might take a while to get there. But once mm -hmm. you find it, and I think it's... Also making sure that people know that you can live well and be well, but it doesn't have to be for 100% of the time. But mm -hmm. trying to make it the majority is mm -hmm. really important. It's, it always reminds me of that really beautiful quote, enjoy the journey and not the destination. Absolutely, it's so important. Because sometimes we're always trying to think about what our best lives mm. would be at the end and yeah. we kind of forget the whole yeah. process that it takes to get there. And I think there. also remembering that the grass is not always greener because it's so easy to look mm -hmm. at and listen and think these people have got perfect lives everything's wonderful and for most of us it's not actually <laughs> hate that's to say one that. small lens <laughs> yeah but it's important it's true I think. yeah so and also i've really learned the older i get the more selfish i am mm -hmm. which i know that sounds really which awful is actually not selfish by the way it's not selfish because then it means i can help more people yeah. so actually to be able to obsessively think about my food think about my sleep my rest my yoga mm -hmm. practice everything else is really really important and i think making sure that you have in your sort of plan or your toolbox ways that are right for you to be able to live well and, and be, be well, well. It's so important yeah yeah i couldn't agree more louise thank you so much oh, for coming you. on the show thanks very much for having me it's been amazing and i am um, i really i honestly even people that haven't gone through the menopause or perimenopause this is such a helpful conversation just for females in general so thank you so much thank you